0: Project Lawful, aka Plane Crash, by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski, and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 100.
1: PL Timestamp Day 8, 9, 7, Late Night.
2: What actually am I missing about the allocation of pillars and the allocation of people suitable for them? Do they mostly end up snatched up by people who aren't very suitable, or are a lot of nobles suitable? Carissa asks Subirox during her debrief once Keltham's gone to sleep. Her ring of sustenance has kicked in, and she feels more rested just in the anticipation of the extra six hours, even
3: before she's had them. I remind you, gently because it is in one way a good sign that you are making this mistake, though a potentially fatal mistake if untreated, that the real Pilar does not have an obligate rape fetish. The alter Pilar's of the real celiacs, if that phrase makes sense, are a great deal less in want than I imagine they should be in alter celiacs. In the true Cheliax, most people who can afford to keep an altar Pilar can choose from any number of prey without a rape fetish, And most of those with power and wealth in Cheliax would find that the more satisfying alternative. I apologize. It should have been my place as well as yours to realize that in alter Cheliax they would be in greater demand than here before Keltham asked after it. Right. I think I don't know enough
2: about real Cheliax to be good at thinking where I'll need to lie. Before Keltham, I rather intended to run my magic shop and never leave it and not come to any one powerful's attention, in significant part because they might rape me, though, also because they might murder me, and I'm not sure if that was a fault of mine, or a cost Cheliax is paying because it's cheaper than other ways of getting tyranny, or if someone would have
3: at some point corrected me in that.
2: But it seems wasteful.
3: I might previously have had a different answer— but I now think we're not actually very lawful compared to how evil we are. If we are talking about the typical magic shop owner, then I think they, in fact, just wouldn't have any grand ambitions of serving Asmodeus that we should be encouraging. Maybe missing a few Carissa savers into the mix is a problem we cannot avoid at our levels of law. It would be a more plausible argument if you didn't have a native intelligence of 18 or the spellcraft that you did... I think we're failing to pick up on potential inner ring members who'd serve Asmodeus better as more than shopkeepers. I don't have a good idea yet of how the new Chelyaks could do better. Except that there could be a Dathalani track for people with native intelligences of 18, and then, something about Keltham strikes me as not the type to hide in his magic shop and never come to anyone's attention. But I could not begin to guess which portion of law that represents... I think a lot of the real answer is that the real Chelyaks is just not very organized by Doth Ilani standards. We aren't sweeping peasant villages for altar pillars and training the most attractive and intelligent ones for sale to the highest bidders that might make a more Asmodean use of them, because we simply aren't rich enough to afford infrastructure like that.
2: Keltham has a bizarre attitude towards being deterred from doing things which might or might not have an evil Dathilani equivalent, and which actually seems important to figure out. I worry it's
3: close to the fragment of law where he wouldn't just be a shopkeeper. If it's law, you're going to have to figure it out. Or maybe Asmodea. The only way I can make headway on it myself is by imagining that Dathilan shaped Keltham from childhood not to become his evil self in ways hidden from him. We may be doing the equivalent of wandering through a dungeon laid in his mind to prevent his escape, and wondering why there are so many traps lying around. Where did they come from? Who would put a spike pit there? Rings? Partially
2: true. He said a bunch of things about how he only cares what civilization would think of him in the sense that civilization is sensible, but... I think it's why the possibility that we're specifically trying to get him to do things his civilization would abhor looms so large. I think Dathilan would be incredibly hostile to anyone, actually. Evil, and he admits it, tried quite hard to make sure he never learned he likes hurting people during sex. The law part is separate from that, though. If I were to take a stab at it, I'd say that— if everyone will predictably not choose their course of action based on threats, then there's no point issuing them, so Doth Ilan worked incredibly hard to make everyone believe about themselves and about everyone else that they predictably won't choose their course of action based on threats. Which is just false of normal
3: humans, but maybe they managed to make it true enough about Doth Ilani. Subirax doesn't see where Sever is going with this. Subarax is not currently having Detect Thoughts run on Sever. It doesn't seem important enough, and security burns a lot of those spells in Project Lawful. But maybe she's only meant to serve as a listening pet to the Chosen of Asmodeus at this point. If my bedroom partners were immune to threats, they would be less fun in many ways, but that would leave enough forms of fun left to still take them, Jacint ventures. Being immune to threats, if that could be done, is not the same as being able to avoid reacting to pain in interesting ways.
2: Nod. And also, it's only a threat in the relevant sense, I think, if it's costly to do, and you're doing it anyway, as follow through on the commitment, made in the hope you wouldn't have to pay it. Like, that we will flog thieves, that's a threat, because no one wants to expend all the resources tracking down and flogging the thieves. But if we didn't, then there'd be lots of them. If you say I want to torture people to death, I just enjoy it. It's fun. But for reasons of maintaining a functioning organization, I commit to restraining unless you betray me. At which point, I'll do the thing I want to do. Not a threat. I think. I should run this by Asmodia, but Keltham's built off it at a very deep level, and it might be an edge. Evil Death Elan has that we can credibly promise punishment even to the kind of entity that doesn't respond to threats, as long as we're doing it because we
3: genuinely love and enjoy it. My mind's picture of Keltham's civilization reacts by turning all our lands into fire and ash, if they can, or turning their own lands to fire and ash if they cannot. But perhaps I attribute too much pride to them. The Most High would know for certain how gods would see it.
2: I think you're right about Doth elans civilization. It has built itself into something that will destroy us, or destroy itself, on contact. It can't live alongside anyone whose values are sufficiently different. I hope that's not true of Keltham's civilization. I don't want to lose him like that. I hope that even once it breaks, he'll look at us and see something that he is willing to live in the same world as— maybe he won't, and then we kill him. And the only way she can protect him is by changing his mind. Or, if she's wrong to think that Cheliax would win, then the only way she can protect the whole world is by changing his mind. Well,
3: fine, then, she'll do that. We are not forbidden to kill him. We are forbidden to maledict him. So it amounts to giving him to Abadar and thence to Assyrian, and we can't keep him prisoner here either." Whatever game is occurring, Asmodius has not allowed us any easy lesser victories in it. Oh, well, Abadar doesn't want the world reduced to fire and ash either, right? Nethys might. Caden Kalian probably doesn't.
4: If this were an larp, which god got their preferred outcome would depend on which romantic interest Keltham ended up most favoring. It's probably for the best that Keltham hasn't thought to mention that to anyone yet.
3: Can we kill Nethys? We can't even maledict Ioni, and if she revives in Nethys's grand temple in Sothis, knowing what she already knows of law and Keltham, maybe the Most High would contradict my interpretation. In fact, I rather suspect she would. It is not the place of seven the Circle priestesses to set their wits against those of gods. But to me, it feels as if we are being told, maybe even by tropes, to submit and play the game that was set for us. Win Keltham by playing fair and possessing that which appeals most to him. Playing fair would be taking it much too far. Keltham does not seem to think that particularly lawful, and I'm quite sure it's not evil.
4: Civilization's hypothetical policy toward things that really, really want to minimise your utility function unless you pay them $5, and which totally didn't get there by strategic self-modification, no really, is in fact to pay any costs required to remove them from reality. You could rationalise it by saying that you expect most of those entities did get there by strategic self-modification, even if they say otherwise – or via some error that their ancestors are less likely to make, if it's obvious that's how most of the potential victims will respond. But that's only part of the reason. The other part is that if you're finding yourself inside horrible broken counterfactuals that shouldn't exist in the first place, and some bastards went and fucked up actual reality. Well even the keepers did start out as human at one point, so fuck all those aforesaid bastards.
1: PL timestamp Day eight, nine, seven, late night, yes, still.
5: Usually when security suddenly comes for you in the middle of the night while you're catching up on your project's paperwork, the scenario in which this happens is a lot more scary than the one Carissa Sever is confronting right now. The security usually isn't kneeling to you with their head bowed, for one thing.
2: No, actually, that is stressful, because he must have fucked up something badly enough. He's not sure if the low punishment rules still apply. What?
5: My name is Oligario. Fifth circle <clears throat> conjuration specialist. I was the security who watched over Zubirax's office, while you spoke to her of your thoughts on creating a place for Dath Ilani in hell. I fear hell. If it is not heresy to do so, and offends not queen nor church nor hell, I would offer my allegiance to you in hopes of receiving whatever place in hell there may be for the vassals of Dath Ilani, who are not Dath Ilani themselves.
2: Oh, Well, there's going to be a lot of that if she really does build something that's able to use more of people than the rest of hell is building. Or even if she doesn't, but people hold out hope that she might. She feels dizzy. It feels like somehow, even though the stakes were plainly high enough for a god war, they just keep getting higher. She has to win Keltham, or he'll set up a civilization built off one that would destroy them if it could— She has to fix hell, or possibly billions of people will go there and get weaker, because no one knows how to use them. Caring about other people is pathetic, but it's sort of allowed if they belong to you, which is precisely what he's offering. Or it could be a test, but if it's a test, she's not sure what it's testing. It isn't heretical to make agreements that explicitly specify themselves to hold as long as they displease none of the church or the queen or hell itself. It approximately can't be. It could be Abigail, volunteers the part of her brain that seems to have assigned itself the role of declaring that everything and everyone could be Abigail. She takes a moment to think. That's probably terrifying to him, but you're supposed to take a moment to think if you're doing anything actually serious, and this is incredibly serious. If it offends not church, nor queen, nor hell, I accept your allegiance, she says, though I'll have to build evil Land before I can even begin to guess the use it will have for its vassals. I don't predict that it would have none.
5: He remains kneeling. Have you any different orders for me? Or requests of me?
2: I'm going to go check if this does, in fact, offend church or queen or hell, and then revisit that question. You're dismissed for now. Does her voice sound childish and incompetent to anyone except her?
5: Oligario thought somehow that the Chosen of Asmodeus would already know what wouldn't offend church, nor queen, nor hell. There is in his stomach the sickening feeling of having taken the wrong risk, a foolish risk a doomed risk. Should he have waited? But the Chosen will have half of Cheliac's wanting to swear to her if the opportunity becomes known and less risky, and she would have less use for a fifth circle then. He rises. I go then to watch over you, as is my duty this night, he says and steps through her door to put back on his invisibility ring.
2: The Chosen of Asmodius really, really wishes she knew what would offend church or queen or hell, but you see, actually, she's just Fourth Circle herself and holding all this together through the sheer conviction that a fly spell can't expire if you aren't looking at your watch. Okay, maybe she knows some things. Abigail's not going to object. Abigail would pay attention to Carissa amassing an independent power base, but Carissa's pretty sure at this point, Abigail's correctly assessed Carissa as not at all a threat on that front. And also, Fifth Circle Conjuration Specialists aren't even dangerous in that evaluation, especially. Hell, presumably owns the wizard's soul, and if she makes it known she wants to buy it, the price will spike wildly. She wishes she could tell Keltham about this. He'd be a delightful accomplice in trying to solve problems like that. So that's just church to check. She goes to Mylal's office. This feels like a thing that has to do with Carissa's fairly inadequate
1: tyranny. Mylal's office is empty. He is dead and raised, and his own ring of sustenance won't kick until tomorrow night.
2: Right, that. She's gotten accustomed to thinking of him as just fixed in that chair for her to visit whenever it occurs to her.
3: Subirox hasn't died recently. She should be up. She is always ready, if perhaps a bit nervous at this point. To receive the Chosen of Asmodeus again, Carissa recounts what happened. I expect it
2: might come up again. My not-alarming her magistrix is between us, I understand, but would anything I might do inspire concern from the Church?
3: Yes. Quite a lot of concern, actually. I think this is a matter for the Most High, period. Understood. I regret my error in underestimating its seriousness— Should I write to her or should you? Jacint sighs. What was she thinking? What was he thinking? Was anyone including herself actually thinking at any point? I shall permit you the privilege, Jacint says. Well, if this is one of those Carissa errors that actually
2: can be solved by hurting her, then that'd be good news, since so many of them apparently can't, and if it can't, then it's going to boil down to, it's allowed if you genuinely succeed at serving Asmodeus with all this nonsense and otherwise not, which is the place Carissa has been for a long time. And she has tomorrow off. There's that. She writes a note for the next dispatch to the Most High that Oligario has, if it does not offend Church, Queen, and Hell offered Carissa his allegiance, and she accepted if those conditions obtain, and then went to check if the conditions in fact obtained, and now repents of her error in not asking first whether, in fact, the Church is so offended, which she is given to understand is a matter for the Most High.
1: Combs accepts the message from Carissa Sivar to Aspexia Rugaton with the numb air of somebody who is trying not to think about any of the names now involved in his daily life. Till timestamp. Day 9, 7. Pre-dawn.
0: Ahem. Blurg? says Asmodia, who is not a morning person. You might think that this wouldn't be a problem, since it is not, in fact, morning, but these two negations utterly fail to cancel. All right, she'll just give the girl a moment then. There's an unfamiliar person wearing spiky armor in her bedroom, holding a black candle in one hand that burns with a blood-red flame. Right. Well, it's not like her life has been normal for a while. I think I'd like to hear an authorization code sometime about now, says Asmodia, because that's what security would like her
6: to say. I don't particularly have one. Security won't hear us while this candle burns, promise. The words are accompanied by a charming, conspiratorial smile that's backed by enough splendor that a sorcerer could burn down a city with it.
0: Uh-huh. Asmodia gets out of her bed, wearing the same student uniform that you might as well call your pajamas as an ostenso wizard student, she goes on past the spiky woman to test the door to her bedroom, finds it locked. She tries to snuff the candle with a mage hand. There's no counterspell visible to her arcane sight, but the candle goes on burning. Asmodea goes to sit on her bed, illuminates her room with a simple cantrip, and raises her eyebrows at her visitor.
6: Are your loyalties by any chance for sale?
0: Anyone can be bought for the right price. You might have some trouble finding mine. Actually, that's sort of Alter Chelyak's Asmodia, not real Asmodia. Well, she is not as sure what real Asmodea says anyways. That would require actual thinking, and it's way too early in the morning.
6: How about a long life of luxury somewhere far from Chelyaks, followed by a plane shift to Abaddon at the end of your life, to leave some over-eager devil appropriately bereft? Uh-huh. In exchange for what, pray tell? Asmodea's thoughts show that, first of all, she's pretty sure this is a test. Second, that's not even much better than the offer she already got from the Most High. And third, Asmodia's thoughts abruptly cut out. Now that is truly interesting. Not that Asmodia was being particularly boring in the first place. Teaching the law you've learned, somewhere far from Cheliax, to patrons who reward with more than a simple surcease of punishment, the mysterious visitor ventures. Thank you, Blatant Loyalty Test. I'd like to get back to sleep now so I can prepare
0: spells tomorrow. And oh, by the way, do my important job for celiacs. Did somebody miss the part where I just said under Keltham's truth spell that I want the project to be able to
6: continue doing what it's doing? I suppose I can't blame you for thinking this a test. Well, consider yourself to be tested on your answer to this. Why wouldn't you take the offer if it was real? In case someone, somewhere, cares about me more
0: than that. You didn't significantly outbid Aspexia Rugaton. I'm having more fun than I've ever had in my life doing what I'm currently doing. I would actually like to see the project continue its work, and my trying to go anywhere Keltham can't flirt with me is prohibited by factors I have no reason to think you're cleared to know about.
6: May I go back to sleep now? One last question. How is it possible that you are concealing some of your thoughts from me? It simply shouldn't be possible to mentally enforce a suppression so complete. Not against Eighth Circle Sorcery. Oh, fuck it. She'd gotten so far
0: without. Did she screw up somehow? Think too many opaque thoughts? Project lawful bullshit that you are not cleared to know about. Asmodia tries, just to see if that works. It does not, in fact, work. Asmodia gets Gorthoclec's authorization, hands it over. Okay, hell's bullshit you're not clear to know about. And I really hope for your sake that you were telling the truth about no other security listening. Because if you were lying about that, we're going to have to call them in to get the same orders, now that you went and said all that out loud. Otherwise, get out of my bedroom, admit to your superior that you failed at running a convincing loyalty test and take whatever punishment goes with that.
6: And don't mention anything about my opaque thoughts in your report. Understood? She's feeling genuinely torn here between bowing her head submissively and saying understood, to see where this goes if it's allowed to keep running, and backhanding the child into hell, to be entertained there for a few hours before being raised. Understood, Asmodia repeats in a slightly sharper voice as she takes the authorization out of the obvious loyalty tester's hands. Understood, says Abrogale the II, reigning queen of Cheliacs and bows her head submissively. She hasn't actually had a chance to consider the implications of Gorthoclec's authorization, which is not particularly written in such fashion as to exclude Abigail Thrun from the scope of Hell's command. Abigail would as soon not do anything with Asmodia she can't undo, before she's had that chance to think, and this pathway does least. Besides, it potentially sets up an interesting reveal later.
0: You say that, but I'm still waiting for you to not be here if she insists and suddenly there's nobody in her bedroom without any magical phenomena or illusions having been particularly visible to her arcane sight a slight prickle of unease pokes at asmodia then there are people in chaliacs who can do that but not a lot of them she thinks who knows what security actually gets up to or what you can do with items the whole thing seems kind of weird suddenly in light of that weird ending was that a trope? Asmodia says out loud in her bedroom and goes outside to briefly report an appropriately censored version of the encounter to security.
5: Security refuses to confirm or deny that a loyalty test occurred, but isn't particularly reacting as if to an unexpected invader.
0: Huh. Well, whatever. Asmodia gets back to sleep.
1: Well, timestamp, day nine, seven, morning. A long oval table has been set up on a rampart of the fortress, overlooking the ocean in one direction, in another direction lit by the morning sun. At present, only five people are sitting here, all of whom have been spending too much time indoors of late. Tea is available, and light snacks of the highest quality, but they are mostly being ignored.
2: The time indoors is not really wearing on her. There's only sunlight six months of the year at the world wound border that Cheliax holds. But everything else is kind of wearing on her, such as having to act like she belongs in present company. Not that she's doing a bad job of concealing that she's still scared of them all, but she bets they all, except possibly my Yoel, can tell. Most high, she says. I had a question for you. Two, actually, but this one makes her look good, so she wants to ask
7: it first. I make no promises about whether I have an answer under our circumstances but ask.
2: Keltham spoke to us of how, in Doth Elon, a group of non-conspirators credibly accused of being in a conspiracy would try to pick the set of actions that would most disadvantage the conspiracy as an act of cooperation with civilization in the worlds in which there was a conspiracy in truth, and for the same reason, a person accused of a murder wrongfully would give the police great detail on their potential motives and reasons to commit it. "'It occurred to me last night that—' "'So I, and I think many other people, "'are in a state of uncertainty about whether I am in fact chosen by Asmodeus "'for a work that will require, or at least that has allowance for, "'the errors and heresies I've fallen into in the course of pursuing it—' or whether I am like Pilar and Ione, the product of the intervention of some other power, presumably acting with Asmodeus's agreement, but not necessarily in his interests. I imagine you have a guess, but I'm not asking for it. I know what I'm meant to know, and it's obvious why I wouldn't be meant to know more. But I understand, then, that Adath Elani in my position would try to— cooperate with the church across the worlds in which she is acting in Asmodeus's interests and the worlds in which she is, against her own will, acting against them, and can't be told so. By doing things which make me easy to countermand or undermine in those worlds where I need countermanding or undermining, or by closing routes that I'd only need if I later desired to betray us. I see why this wouldn't have been pointed out to me— Lest it raise to my attention in the first place that I don't know whether Asmodeus chose me or not. But now that I reasoned through it, is there by any chance a standard list of things I can do?
6: I suppose that decisively answers the question of whether exposing people to Keltham can turn them into Aspexia Rugaton, because that is the most Aspexia Rugaton thing that has ever been said by anyone who is not Aspexia Rugaton. She's still keeping it professional and still won't be looking at Carissa's thoughts.
7: Alas, your infernal majestrix! it is easier to sound like me than to be me. Sever, when your thoughts become that complicated, it is time to simplify them if at all possible. You are no true Dathalani as yet. The first fundamental principle, in any case where Asmodeus's orders have been given, is to follow Asmodeus's orders. I'm not sure you appreciate the gift you are given in having orders you can follow. I must usually operate without them myself. Whatever the unclarity of his vision of the mortal realm, Asmodeus does balance across worlds like those you describe without the slightest difficulty. Perhaps, indeed, the orders to let you travel beyond Cheliacs without selling your soul are to the advantage of some other god hoping to receive you from us. Or, perhaps, they are intended to let you wait on a higher soul price, and yet follow Keltham in some circumstance where you should and must, to Asmodius's advantage. Suppose we can be confident that the first case was always the one that held, that it is only to some other god's advantage that you have freedom of travel. Even if we are certain of this, we must not disobey our orders, not push them around the edges— what we think is our lord's advantage because the effect of that is simply to require our lord to work harder to instruct us when some other god pays him to grant someone freedom of travel our lord has gone to great lengths to make the asmodean system one of obedience once orders have been given it is in his nature as a god and when we try to make him work through means, whose nature is contrary to giving orders to be obeyed, making him take into account our possible disobedience or edge flirtation, we are going against his nature and costing him yet more. How do we balance our choices across the worlds that might be, the reasons, our Lord might have, his possible interests, his likely goals? If we have orders, the answer is— by just obeying him. What is it that you think not covered by our orders, of which you'd ask such complicated questions? Accepting
2: the allegiance of those who call me chosen of Asmodeus, and desire to be among the vassals of my kingdom in hell, and buying their souls in secret so the fact of my interest doesn't drive the price through the roof.
6: I'd say that possibilities like these are exactly why I visited you in your bedroom to check your loyalties that morning but in fact this is so vastly worse than any possibility i'd actually envisioned you are very lucky to have the quality of being visibly and clearly loyal to me
7: personally it is not apparent to me that we need especially complicated reasoning to handle this issue why not just say among ourselves that we are uncertain about whether you are chosen only of asmodeus or chosen of some other or chosen perhaps of both and then proceed in the face of that uncertainty we know of Hell that our Lord is eager to have you, that your price there is somewhere beyond vast. He has instructed you to serve him well in this world and come to him in hell to be treasured by him. It is not a negligible imprimatur whether the original spur for it was asmodius or an old pact or new bargain. What you are looking for, I think is some assurance that your theology is correct, that your plans for hell are correct, and this is a kind of assurance that is problematic to get into a habit of seeking, even if you are chosen of Asmodeus and no other. What if you are roughly on the right track, but destined to arrive at better theology and better plans in 81 days instead of nine, and if you are not originally chosen of Asmodeus and no other? then he nonetheless instructed you to serve him well in this world, and be raised high in it, and indicated that you were a soul who might be exceptionally treasured by him in hell. And hell's vast price on you is justified to us, as centering around your ability to produce better devils, though we are told that of other matters it is forbidden to speak. We can scarcely assume your ideas wrong— even if we somehow know for certain that you were singled out by some other god. So, we must proceed regardless with care for the case where your plans make sense, and care for the case where they do not. You are loyal to us either way, for in either case, you are the Carissa Savar that stands before me, and whose thoughts lie open to my examination. You do not need to play games against a version of yourself opposed to us whose mind I cannot read. You are simply yourself, planning across two possibilities, and we can simplify away all the complications, of which, Keltham spoke in his own case, where possible people he is dealing with have intentions and wills explicitly opposed to their other possible selves. It is all too easy to introduce complications that sound like a spexia rugaton. The true qualification for being her is being able to simplify away those complications that were not needed and introduce those that were missing.
2: Yes, most high. Probably she'd still be loyal if she knew some other god had chosen her. She hates Nephys and doesn't think much of Caden Kalian. Most people apparently aren't loyal when they have options, but probably she'd still be loyal even if she knew for sure and doesn't need to play against a traitor. She would never be.
7: Aspexia notes the rather visible absence of Abadar and Erori from Sevar's consideration, after she was told to stay out of Axis and not to think herself Erori, and has fallen in love with Abadar's cleric. Aspexia hesitates, though, to inquire further of Sevar upon those two, right at this moment. Sevar is making progress herself, in some directions, even as she becomes more worrying within others. Neither does she remind Savar that she was offered support in descending into cruelty, wickedness, and the darkness of her own soul, on which Savar has not made much visible progress recently. They were instructed not to be proactive about that. A worrying sign, however. What
6: does all that amount to in practice, though, as policy? I know what my first thought would be, but Keltham seems to think that I should not speak mine until others have spoken theirs. I see some amusing possibilities in the practice, maybe even useful ones. Male Yol?
1: Fuck Keltham. Seriously. No. It's a huge disaster and explosion waiting to happen, and strikes at the heart of the chelish state itself. Tell Oligario no. Put the whole concept under real, actual, no rumors classification.
6: Subirax?
7: Abigail?
6: I stand by my ordering. Subirax?
3: Allow absolutely no word of this to pass beyond the fortress walls, but within it, let the chosen do as she wills. She needs the practice. Sevar. It's a thing I want and can't possibly ever find an
2: Axis, and I want it quite a lot. But it does seem to me like a terrible plan if I get out of hand in the future and possible that I am rather than finding the wickedness and cruelty I'm supposed to be looking for mostly finding the high opinion of myself and enjoyment of power that aren't going to be sufficient for whatever I need to be cruel and wicked for. I could imagine myself getting eternally distracted from cruelty and wickedness by trying to do whatever seems most practical from where I presently stand And since where I presently stand is, as the heretic who is testing what happens when you don't punish people very much, I'd end up trapped in a set of results that you can reach from that start while only doing things that accumulate resources, and which is worse than the place I'd land if I was doing something better. So, I don't know. Which is why I have referred the question to my betters, If there were any doubt in my heart that my loyalty to you will survive any power at all I might attain, she adds to Abigail, then I wouldn't do it, because that seems like a great way to set myself on a course where I betray you eventually, or look tempted to, or even just look infuriatingly like I think I could get away with it. But there's no doubt in my heart there, and you can look as long as you'd like. Keeping it professional.
6: Mostly. That was professionally necessary. Sometime later, dear, the way in which your thoughts change when I read them is not something you should be juggling right now. My own impulse would be to prohibit all such shifts of allegiances until we are sure there are any new places in hell to be had, and that all offers of such are aligned to the purposes of church and crown, perhaps required to be approved by them. I see possibilities of explosive disappointment here and Oligario's unilateral decision that these places are to be offered at the whim of individual Ilani to their vassals is one I do not recall approving. Aspexia, your decision? I yield it fully to you. This is very, very obviously a matter that impinges on Asmodius's own fun.
7: Realistically, the most important consideration here is Savar herself. If Subirax thinks that Savar having her own fiefdom is likely to produce good effects on her spiritual development, all else must yield to that, provided we think that we can in fact restrict that information sufficiently tightly that it does not affect the rest of Cheliax. Abigail, Mayol,
6: fail your will save against my detect thoughts, and then think about whether it can in fact be done, given conditions on the project. I see you will have those authorities then. Do not fail Cheliacs in this, my Yol. Sevar, the Most High has spoken upon this matter of faith. Is that a yes?
2: Those phrases were more consistent with a yes than a no,
6: but also Abigail likes playing games. And now we speak of politics, Your Majesty? No, dear, I mean that the Most High has spoken upon this matter, which I concede to be a matter foremost of faith. She referred back to me a political part, and I ordained it so. This place is now your fiefdom, and if some believe that you have power over hell's punishment also, well, we shall see what comes of that. Who knows, perhaps they are right.
7: And
2: if not, that's on them for assuming it was so. She does not squeal in delight, though probably to Abigail she might as well have. She nods. My other question, most high, is whether, while you're here, you have correction for me. Since they're not supposed to be proactive.
7: Yes, but not all here need be present for it. Subirax, perhaps, but not the others. I shall tarry after for that.
6: If we have no other business among all of ourselves? Well, then, security, escort them in for morning tea.
7: The other
0: girls come in. And Neil, obviously, because that's the queen. And the Grand High Priestess at a breakfast table with Carissa, who looks noticeably cheerful. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.